Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 12. This episode was titled Dearest Brenda, and my lovely wife, Becky, played the part of Deborah in this episode, reading the letter. So I, I forgot to mention that in the, the credits of the episode, but hopefully you all enjoyed that. We tried to mix things up a little bit so you didn't hear me reading a woman's voice. We covered kind of a lot and nothing all at the same time in this episode. I found it to be kind of an interesting one. But uh, sitting across from me at the table here, I have to give his take on it, Mr. Zach Weaver. Hey, hey. And, of course, my right-hand man sitting directly to my right, as always, is our executive producer, editor extraordinaire, Mr. Mike Bussing. Hey. And since the gang's all here, let's go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. Hundredth cappuccino by eight, two hundredth customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our Stay Connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only. T's and C's apply. All right, before we get into the listener questions this week, uh, Zach, your thoughts on the episode? Uh, it was nice to hear the letter to kind of get some insight on how Deborah was feeling mm-hmm. towards everybody. Right. You never know with mood swings how she could be feeling. Mm-hmm. But at the time of the letter, it seems she was very positive, very upbeat, and very wanting to bring the family back together. Because from this point, we know that Brenda has kind of been, I don't want to say excommunicated, but it kind of sounds like she's almost excommunicated at this I point. Think, I think she's more excommunicated herself. And I think that was the other, for me, another benefit of the letter was getting a look at, kind of a third-party look at the relationship between Agnes and Brenda. No, I have to agree that the the outside look really helped kind of bring some things together for me. Past the note in the the episode, we talked about the font, and I think that was groundbreaking to see Mm -hmm. that the font possibly matched. And then in the the episode, you talked about that this was it. You thought she was guilty because of this, which I think, I mean, that was... That could have been a huge thing right there. 
Yeah, and, and there were a lot of people on the fan page, and I wanted to, you know, obviously when we're writing those episodes, we're trying to be concise and tell a story, and this, mm-hmm. and this is our place where we get to break things down a little bit more. And, and there were some people that were like, I can't believe that just based on font, Bob was ready to write her off. Yeah, I was, I mean, so obviously a lot of the listeners know that I've leaned towards her probably being guilty. Uh-huh. But I was even a little alarmed that that was kind of your tipping point. So, right. So to expand upon that. You know, there were, first of all, if you didn't quite catch where I was coming from in the episode, the issue was that, mind you, I didn't know the default font was that. So, mm-hmm. so let's start there. Is when I saw the note, I immediately thought, wow, that's a, that's more of a unique choice for as far as font than I thought. Because not only is the Times New Roman, but it's, it's tiny, it's small, very mm-hmm. small font. Um, or at least I, I found it to be very small font. And so I'm like, oh, so that at the, my first thought was, oh, I bet it didn't come from the Courtney's computer because that's not the default. That's not what the, what Agnes typed with. So it probably that this is probably a good indication it didn't come from their computer. And so I had in my mind that this is a very unique setting for someone to say because that weird margins compared mm-hmm. to now, because now kind of the typical is again, one inch margins and like an 11 or 12 point font. It had like one and a quarter inch mar- big margins in the small font. So. I have in my mind that this is a, this is an incredibly unique choice to type with these settings. And then I find the Dearest Brenda letter, and I read it through a few times, and then I'm looking, I'm like, man, that's small too. And I scale it, and I realize, oh my goodness, it is the exact same settings as that. So, in, But in my mind, remember at that point, as far as I knew, those were not default settings. Someone, that was their preference, went in and changed the settings to this small font and big margins. And then I see this note written by Deb on that computer, and it was put into the same exact, in my mind, again, strange settings. So that was too much of a coincidence for me. And, and when I say that the, you know, the season would end, I still, you know, we, we're not talking about it right now until we get more information, that, and I'm working on that as we speak. But there's still big issues that I have with timing, regardless. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult for me to see how Deb could have been involved in these murders based on, you know, when did Agnes die and when do we know Deb was gone, you know, with with those two things. So those things were still going to happen in the background. But what I was saying as far as the season ending is I'm not going to devote all of my time and waste your time, the listeners, to hear me continue trying to see if maybe Deb has an alibi when there is a, a large piece of evidence that's pointed right at her, aside from the blood, but, mm-hmm. on to, but now the font thing right at her. So that's kind of where I was coming from. And then you know, the way the episode framed, I, I hope everybody you know, in, enjoyed the listen and found it interesting and educational, but it was kind of, you know, I was, I was writing the episode already and framing it for that reveal. And then I got the note, you know, the saw the post and dug in a little further and found out, oh, that's that's not only the, the default on the Courtney's machine, at least the factory default, not that they couldn't have changed it, but not only is that the default on their machine, it's the default on damn near every machine. Mm-hmm. I would say most machines. And, and the copy and paste idea to, at the end of the episode is huge and makes uh-huh. a lot of sense because I, I remember it still does that if you do it today. Does it? If you, if you copy a text from a website, from an email, whatever it was. And you it, paste it in. And paste it in. It will keep the font and the size. Right. So, I mean, that makes perfect sense that maybe that was her email server was that font mm-hmm. and size. And she just copied and pasted yeah. it. 
And there's been, I haven't dug, I've been pretty busy this week, but on the fan page, it seems like people are, you know, kind of mixed on that. Some people are saying it doesn't do it. Some people are saying it does do it. Depends on that. So I, I don't, I don't have a, a, you know, a hundred percent answer for you yet if that's exactly what happened. But that, when I did it, I did it on my computer here, same, which mm-hmm. is completely different software, but it mm-hmm. did that. And I feel like I remember it always doing it because I remember, you know, like writing papers or writing letters and then like copying and pasting something for part of it from an email it would drive me nuts because that section would be in a different. Yeah. Then you have to reformat right. that section back to the other part. Yeah. So yeah, that was interesting. Uh, the, you know, again, the, the font, you know, people have done more work, people have been emailing me and stuff and, and showing me that, you know, there, there's all kinds of, I wouldn't say stats, but a lot of information that apparently when Windows 2000 came out, it was extremely expensive. It was like $400 or 200 some dollars to upgrade. Mm-hmm. And so people were either using Microsoft Works or they were the, the Word 97 hung on for years. Like it sounds like Word Word 2000 never really got popular cuz it wasn't good enough as far as improvements to justify spending the hundreds of dollars on it. But it basically just means that, you know, a lot of people, you know, I would say there's probably guessing a 70% chance if you sat down at a computer in 2001 and typed up a note, it would be in those exact settings. Did you ever think you'd spend this much time talking about a font? Mm-mm. And I bet the listeners didn't either. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I hope people aren't getting frustrated, but th- this is our process. It just happens to be, this is more interesting when we're digging into the details of blood spatter or, or, or you know, some, something like that as opposed to something like computer font, but it's all necessary. This is why we do what we do. This is why Mike Ware wanted us to take the case is because he knows that we can bring in all these different perspectives and we can answer these questions as we're trying to do, you know, and I hope, I, I hope that everyone listening is, is, is starting to realize that, you know, to trust me in the fact that I don't have an agenda, I'm not trying to prove Deb parents are innocent or guilty. I'm just trying to find the truth and the way to the truth is to answer all the questions, fill in the gap, create a clear picture, and then we'll see where that points us. And and we're still way down the line in the process of doing that. All right, we've got two questions here from listener Yuli. Yuli's first question is, after the dearest Brenda letter, I'm really curious about the daughter's open letter. Do you have it? I don't. I scoured through um, the documents, the files, the subfolders, looking for it, and and it's it's just not in there, which is really frustrating. Because what's interesting, Zach, that wasn't on the show because I didn't notice it until later. I think I saw, it, but it didn't really piece it together. So remember, I said that it was it was whatever the date was. I think it was October second. I'm trying to remember the top of my head when Deb sat down and wrote the dearest Brenda letter, saved it, printed to send to Brenda. Mm-hmm. Then that document was accessed the next day, not written on, but accessed the next day, which means. Agnes read the letter. Or somebody did. Right. Yeah. Somebody at the computer. Well, but then within, I don't remember the time frame, but I mean, it's within minutes, Agnes creates the file, open letter to daughters. So it, it, it seems as though Agnes read the letter that Deb had written to Brenda and then responded to that by writing a letter to both, both daughters, like immediately afterward. Hmm. And I would love to know what it says. I don't have it. I will. I will say this. I guess I'll, I'll put it out there now. I'd, I said in last week's episode we were going to start covering Deb's trial testimony this week, and I know a lot of you are itching to get into it, and we're going to get there, but we're not going to get into it this week because in that search, I found another set of documents written by Agnes, and they are very, very interesting. 
and timing-wise and, and as far as the course of investigation, they need to come next. We need to go through these, these documents before we move any further. So that's what's going to be coming this weekend. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right, Yuli's next question. Are we sure Deborah ever mailed the letter to Brenda? Uh, we're not. You know, that's something that I want to write and ask Deb about if she ever sent it. Um, but right now, Deb is, I don't know what's going on. There's some listeners that that keep regular correspondence with her. Uh, and she had told me she was going to write me another letter, and none of us had heard anything for a little while. And then looking at the TDCJ website, it says, at least as of last week, it says that her location is is the hospital. So she's not. So, so nobody knows. I've talked to Allison. She was going to try to do some checking, and I've talked to her um, her cousin, Judge, to see if she can figure out. Nobody seems to know what's going on. All we know is she's not in the prison right now, or at least as of last week. Not in the prison, and in, in, rather she's in the hospital. So, hopefully she's okay, and everything gets straightened out. And then on top of that, once hopefully everything's okay, then we will. Then I will ask her that question to see whatever happened with it. You know that was one thing, and, and I hate to speculate with the letter, being that there was some some redacted portions. But you know, I mean, that could be something along the lines of she was either in rehab or institutionalized, or you know, what I mean, there, there's something there because the way it's even framed, even being reacted, you can tell that she was somewhere. Yeah, and, and and we know that she was in a, I don't want to call it a mental hospital, but she was in a, a, a treatment facility mm-hmm. for her depression mm-hmm. um, around that time. So I, I think that's what we're talking about. There's, and you'll see the, in the, the stuff we're going to cover this week on, in Sunday's episode, there's weird redactions. Like, uh, it, it appears, and, and, and when we read them, I'm just going to have to say redacted because I can't really speculate to exactly what it was. But it appears they were redacting out Angela's name in these documents, which is Deb's daughter. Okay. Like her name is redacted out of it. But then like the next page, it's not redacted. And then the next page it is redacted. And then it's, it's really strange. Some of the redactions are weird, but it is, it seems as though they were redacting out, you know, as it, what I'm hypothesizing based on what we do know that, that Deb was at like a, um, a psychiatric treatment facility. Sarah says, there's been a lot of debate as to whether Deb was sincere in her motive for writing the letter. It didn't come off as manipulative to me, but clearly it is open to interpretation. What were your first impressions? I didn't find it manipulating at all. It's self-serving, maybe, to, to, to some point. You, you can definitely tell that, in my opinion, she genuinely is trying to repair the relationships in the family. But you can also read in the context of her letter how it always seems to kind of circle back around to her, too. You know, so it's, it's, you know, I want you to have a relationship with our parents. I know I struggle too. Here's a list of things that I have tr- trouble with. 
that I'd like to see. So it's kind of like she's like venting about her, but then also saying, but we both kind of need to get over this. I don't, I don't know. What do you think, Zach? No, I agree. I, I think that's exactly spot on is the fact that I, I think that it's not trying to manipulate her, but it's definitely, there's some self-serving aspects in there. And, and it kind of sounds like Deborah's that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, if she's had multiple checks written to her over time and time again, you yeah. know, she's, she's worried about number one and that's it. Yeah, dude, it was, and yeah, and I don't know if I'd go that far. I just don't know, but I, but I'm telling you, dude, it was a stack of checks that big. Mm-hmm. I'm holding my fingers about an inch apart right now. Um, so for all of you at home, it's it's a stack an inch tall. Right, exactly, one inch tall, give or take an eighth of an inch. Uh, but it was, it was like we were going through them, and it was like a check to AT and T, and this is the bottom Deb's phone bill, and there's you know here's a check to Deb and Paul, and here's a check for this, and a check for that, and a check for that. It sounds like from other documents that they were doing something similar with Brenda, but of course the state wouldn't, mm-hmm. they're trying to build a case against Deb, so they're showing all this, which, which I, what do you think about that? I think that it is counterproductive toward when they're pointing towards more motive that look, look at all this money they gave her. She's motivated by money. I look at it like they were her gravy train. Yeah. No, that, that does make a good point because if she was motivated by money, why would she kill them if she's continuing to get money? Right. Like she, she could easily still continue to get money rather than one lump sum out of a will. Right. Yeah. And obviously maybe, you know, if she's got a couple hundred grand coming to her that, you know, maybe that, you know, that's enticing. But again, it's not even, even a couple hundred grand. That's not, I mean, that's a lot of money, but it's not, that's not lifelong, life-changing money. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you can, you know, pay your house off. It's just not going to last you for a long time that that amount of money and then and then it all sticks back to motive because people have talked about well maybe her dad was the target and she had to kill her mom because she was there and it's like well the, if the, if there's anything or any combination like that then it takes money out of it again because the only way she's getting anything from the will is if both are dead mm-hmm. if you just kill one that doesn't accomplish anything so that would mean that it would you know there would have to be a premeditation motive to kill both of her parents in order for that to work out. And there's, again, the crime scene, the note, again, I said it before, is the ugly duckling of this case because there's a lot of things in the crime scene that looks like a heat of the moment, crime of passion type of attack. Or it also could be interpreted as, because, you know, people keep saying overkill, but overkill means they're dead and you keep stabbing them. This wasn't overkill. This was, you know, 75 attempts to kill them before she finally connected. She, whoever, finally connected. But if we're talking about Deb being the perpetrator, it's not overkill. But, you know, it could be interpreted as some of the very personal fit of rage type of thing. But it could also be interpreted as, is, is a robbery gone wrong? And what, because the things that make it look personal are the same things that would make it look like it was uh, a, a burglary gone wrong. And that's the fact that it appears to be unplanned. But then you have the note. The note throws everything off. Mm-hmm. The note makes it premeditated, which doesn't fit with the unplanned nature of the, the forensics of the attack. Mm-hmm. You know, you have this, this, and we know, like, as I said a couple of weeks ago, one thing's for sure, whether it was Deb or somebody else, the note was typed before the murders. Mm-hmm. Had a bit, because there was no, nothing was typed on the Courtney's computer after Agnes got home. We know that for a fact. Yeah. So that says premeditation, but the crime doesn't look like premeditation because, you know, people have said, well, Obviously, it wouldn't be some killer coming in to kill them because they had to use the frying pans. That you know, they may have had a knife, but that's it. So it could have been, but it. So it must have been Deb. It's like, well, even if it was Deb, it's still it, because of the note. It has to be premeditated, and she didn't bring. So that argument goes out the window because whoever it was, 
needed a knife and four frying pans to kill them and also pre-planned it with because of the note. That's very confusing. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to. I was talking to Jim Clemente last night. And we didn't get into this case yet. He's got some stuff, some personal stuff going on right now. So I don't want to bother him with it right now. But as we're getting more of these answers, I want to get him in here and have him profile. And it just even more so than just a profile, but just to talk about and help us understand the behaviors on this crime scene because they're my knowledge of criminal behavior analysis is new and limited and based mostly on what I've learned from Jim and from books. And this case doesn't fit any textbook. It's it's too many weird anomalies for my lack of expertise. Yeah. And I, I got to agree. I don't think money was the motivation in this whatsoever. I don't know what the motivation would be, but it's definitely, there's some personal hostility in there. And I don't think money had anywhere to play with that, even if it was a robbery gone wrong. Mm-hmm. I know we've talked about this before, so I don't want to go over and over it again, but uh, you know, the, the note, again, I always come back to the note in the fact that it, the way it's written, it just doesn't seem, the note is written as though it's too Lloyd, mm-hmm. but it's pinned to his dead body, which also doesn't make sense. But we have to remember, it, the note was typed out previous. So to me, that's, a, that's an indicator If we take it on its face value, it's an indicator that whoever did this intended to go into the house and do something as maybe as revenge to Lloyd and leave the note for Lloyd to then later find and feel, you know, so like say they were going to come in and kill Agnes Mm -hmm. or they were going to go in and attack Agnes or, or just ransack the house. Right. Yeah. Something like that. But then again, it says you should watch who you let in your door. So, like, if the note's legit, which I'm leaning towards, it's not. But then, like, like what is that? What was the plan? I'm going to come in the door. You're going to let me in. And then I'm going to do something that leaves you to where I can leave this note for you. It's hard to, it's hard to make sense of. But maybe the watch you, watch you let through the door isn't from that event. Maybe it's from a prior event of somebody that came to service something. Oh, that's a good point. You know what I mean? Like, somebody came... To service, you know, they they went to prison, got out of prison. Now they work for X company. X company. So, say comes, for example, the the plumber guy or the, the guy plumber. that was yeah yeah comes out, realizes who he is, mm-hmm. then you know comes up with the attack down the road. You know, a week and a week later or whatever the time sure. frame is. That would make more sense than because because you know my struggle with it is it doesn't it doesn't make sense the way it was found. Mm-hmm. You don't write a note to a dead person. It's premeditated. It makes sense. That it would be that it was planned to be left there for Lloyd to find whatever they did when they got there. But then the opening the door doesn't make sense. And that's the only way it makes sense is what you just said. Mm-hmm. Or e- even if it's just like a, a countermeasure, which let's face it. I mean, as, as much as you know, I know there are a lot of people out there, at least some people out there that, that are really convinced of Deb's guilt. It doesn't this. You don't see shit like this. Yeah. So so a forensic countermeasure, a premeditated so I'm going to write up this note real quick to have it in my pocket that's going to point towards some criminal that Lloyd dealt with mm-hmm. to put on him after the murders. That's that's my pl- like that is a that is a crazy amount of thought. And if it was done like that, then I think you would expect it to be better thought out. OK, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, 
Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Well, in thinking out loud, you talking about the target being Agnes, that would make sense with the time of day. If the suspect doesn't realize that Lloyd doesn't work during the day. Right. Because, you know, if you ask anybody or say, I'm at work, they assume you work nine to five. Or in the scenario you just you just laid out, say someone who'd been in the house, uh-huh. say they came in at two o'clock someday and, and dealt with Agnes old. and they said Lloyd's at work. My assumption would be they must work eight to five mm-hmm. normal business hours, normal business hours, not knowing they don't go to work until two o'clock. Yeah, especially a 70 year old man. You wouldn't expect him to work, quote unquote, second shift. Right. So. But that that would line that up more with it being an attack on Agnes and he just happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Right. You don't think that's a legitimate no, do you? I don't know. I mean, were you listening to this conversation? I was, but I was, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's like, it seems like you was. guys are, it's just like this. I don't know. The, the problem is that it doesn't make sense either way. Like my initial thought is, yeah, obviously a forensic countermeasure intended to misdirect police. Right. But then it's like, why would it be written that way? Why would it be typed up beforehand and then put, you know, because if somebody's planning a murder, it's it's just a measure they take to try and mislead. They know that they want to try and mislead whoever finds the bodies. Right. But if you're doing that in a premeditative fashion, I don't think you write a note written to a dead person. You know what I mean? Like you'd write like, ha ha, fuckers. Look what I did in prison. You're next or something, you know, like something like written to the police, the investigators or. That's what's baffling about it to me is the note is written as though the writer thinks at the end of this attack, Lloyd's going to be alive because they wrote it to Lloyd. No, yeah, but I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what they thought, man. I mean, I think they just needed somebody to talk. They needed, they needed somebody to talk to. What sticks out to me, like the, the main point of the note is that it shows partially how the attack was done. It shows who did it, which is weird, right? It, like it puts them in connection with right. Lloyd. It sh- it sh- it, it, what the note narrates is that Lloyd put me in prison and I came here and killed him. I came through his door. He let me in and I killed him. Right, which doesn't make sense to it's, do that. It's admission. Yeah. It's admission for no reason. And giving the police a direction to go, which is, which is not what you want to do if you're actually that guy. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's where I'm at with it. Like, I feel like it's, I believe it's a complete forensic counter- countermeasure because because it's so odd and and because it's it's very specific and it it's literally like it's giving the police clues right yeah and i i don't disagree with you at all it, it's just but it's just so complex because when you, there's all these different layers that make also you know so say it was someone else you know let's leave deborah out of it let's say it's the plumber you know the plumber did it, it, it they're just trying to direct the police there the way it was written and the timing of it it still it it still doesn't make sense. I definitely think most likely it is a you know most likely it's a forensic countermeasure because yeah you don't point. But then again, we are also putting in our I guess intelligence level exactly in, yeah. into the like we can look at it and say That's how a, yeah. stupid can you be right. to write a letter saying who did it when you did it? That's dumb. But well, people do that. That's the same thing about who you're writing it to. Right. Exactly. Is is we say why would you write it to the person to the, if you right. killed them? But if you're 
True. If you're not there, you could you were just doing it because you don't have that level of sophistication. Right. Tara says, do you know what Deborah is referring to when she states in her letter to Brenda, quote, I am very proud of you. I remember where you came from and where you are now. Is there more info on where Brenda came from? First of all, I'll say I found that part to be condescending. That means like talking down to you, Zach. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, that was one of those parts that I was like, Ugh. like I would be so irritated when my brother wrote me something like that. Like, I'm proud of you. Look where you've come from. But. Again, I, I'll say again, we're going to learn a little bit more about that on Sunday, but a little more, not as much as we'd like for that particular part of it. But my, so remember, we have this, this strange adult adoption. And so my assumption is, and that's all it is, is that Brenda was in some sort of dire straits at that time. You know, she had gone through divorce. Maybe she was broke. Maybe she didn't have a job. Maybe she was in, you know, for whatever reason, she's in, she was in a bad predicament. And now we see like that Agnes is saying you know, that she's, you know, in the will document, the addendum to the will, that she says that she's financially stable, makes good decisions, and, you know, she's, she's in a financially good position. So that's, that's where I would assume she's going with that, that she was in bad shape before, and now she's doing well for herself. Cecilia says, sorry if this was discussed, but for what I remember, Deb used the computer and printer at her work before because she doesn't have one. So why use her parents' computer to write the letter? It looks like a passive-aggressive move. I don't know. It, it, unless it has completely escaped my memory, I don't recall any evidence that, that, that Deb used a work computer to type on prior to this. And I don't think Deb was employed at this time also. Carl says, not sure if this has already been stated, but at what age was Brenda adopted to the family? And with all of that, was there any record of past issues with her and the family growing up? I still don't know when she was adopted. Uh, I've seen on some of the TV shows, they say she was adopted at 30. I've been told she was adopted at 21. I've heard 25. So honestly, I still don't know the exact date or age she was when she was adopted. Lynn says, it's been hypothesized that Agnes may have been seeking custody of Angela. Have you uncovered any evidence to support this? It seems like this could cause the intense anger displayed in these murders. Again, more information coming Sunday, uh, but the, the short answer is no. There is no evidence whatsoever that Agnes was trying to get Angela. I, I will say, I will confirm that was not happening. Margie says, is Brenda aware of the podcast and has she made any comment? I don't know and no, she hasn't made any comment, at least not to me. Kim says, Maxine Love stated that the Courtney's financially supported Brenda and Sarah. You had mentioned that you and Allison went to view some of the unreleased evidence while in Fort Worth. Some of this included the cash checks that were issued to Deborah. Were there any there for Brenda? If not, is there anything that indicates they did financially support her? Or is it possible that perhaps Maxine Love got Brenda confused with Deborah? Well, like I, we, we touched on this earlier. Um... You know, there, there were no checks in the in the DA's or the the clerk's file for checks to Brenda, but that's not surprising whether they whether they did exist or not. Um, you know, they were building a case against Deb, so they they wouldn't have anything in there for Brenda. But with that being said, um, as the theme of today's follow up is a little bit more on that issue also coming on Sunday. All right, and our last question comes from Stephanie. She writes, wondering about Brenda's daughter Sarah. When did her relationship with the Courtneys deteriorate? What type of lifestyle did she have that they opposed so vehemently? And do we know if any people she associated with were potentially drug users, violent criminals, or anything like that? 
So this question is a great segue into Sundays, as I've been hinting at all along. Uh, We will get the answer to that question and many more on Sunday when we begin the deepest dive we've had so far in the most intricate and interesting look into the victimology of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. So make sure you tune in for that on Sunday. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yomnik, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. All right, man. We're okay. doing good. All right. It's going to lead us right into Sunday's episode, Mikey Mike. Oh, yeah, Mikey yeah. Mike and the Funky Bunch, this guy. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I know. I'm kidding.